0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. So good to have you back on another episode of The Islamic History Podcast. Let's go ahead and quickly get into the show. Don't want to keep you holding but for so long. In today's episode, we will be discussing the beginning of the Muslim conquest of Egypt. Now, Much of this conquest was facilitated or made easy by the persecution of the Coptic Christians in Egypt by their Roman overlords. So in this episode we're going to talk about much of the persecution of the cops and then we will also introduce a new military leader as far as the Muslims are concerned a new military leader the companion Amr ibn al-As and he will play a very crucial role not only in this episode but also in future episodes of the Islamic History Podcast So with that Let's go ahead and get started. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com Egypt. That is islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Egypt. And with that, let's go ahead and get started with the Islamic History Podcast Season 2, Episode 8. <laughs> let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. After the Prophet's death, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in the year 632 of the Common Era, Abu Bakr, his closest companion, was chosen as his successor or the Caliph of the Muslim world. Many tribes soon after that rebelled against Abu Bakr, but Abu Bakr and his general Khalid ibn Walid waged a successful campaign against these rebels, called the Wars of Apostasy or the Ridda Wars. Ultimately, Abu Bakr and Khalid ibn Walid were successful in this campaign and they brought all of these rebel tribes back into line. Soon after the conclusion of the Ridda Wars, Abu Bakr ordered invasions of both Syria and Persia to the north of the Arabian Peninsula. Khalid ibn Walid led the campaign in Persia, whereas Abu Umaydah led the campaign in Syria. Khalid ibn Walid was successful in Persia, however Abu Arbaidah was not as successful. Ultimately, Abu Bakr ordered Khalid ibn Walid to transition to Syria and take over operations there. Abu Bakr died soon after Khalid ibn Walid arrived in Syria and he was succeeded by Omar ibn al-Khattab, another close companion of Prophet Muhammad. Despite Khalid ibn Walid's successes in both Syria and Persia, Umar ibn al-Khattab removed him from the top military position in favor of Abu Ubaidah. Nonetheless, Khalid ibn Walid continued to serve faithfully under Abu Ubaidah. Eventually, the Romans in Syria and the Sassanids in Persia staged a comeback to retake the lands that they had lost to the invading Muslim armies. This led to the pivotal battles of Yarmouk in Syria and Kodesiya in Persia, both of which were won by the Muslim armies. As a result, the Romans lost all control over their territory in Syria and the Persian Empire was now on the brink of defeat. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, now the Muslim leader in Persia, Moved on from Cordesia to besiege the Persian capital of Tessifan, which was the headquarters for the Sassanid dynasty, the ruling family of Persia. Eventually, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas captured Tessifan. Now, the Sassanid dynasty and the Persian government was on the run, with the Muslim armies hot on their tail. Despite these successes, there were some setbacks for the Muslims. First of all, Khalid ibn Walid was eventually completely dismissed from the military by Khalif Omar. Khalid ibn Walid died not too long after his dismissal. Then there was a devastating plague that swept through Syria, killing many of the prominent leaders and companions of the Muslim army, including Abu Albaidah, the leader of the Syrian invasion. Finally, a severe drought hit Arabia, which led to a severe famine. Many of the victims of the famine found refuge in Medina, the capital of the Muslim Empire. Umar ibn Khattab was forced to bring in food and provision from other parts of the empire in order to care for the refugees. Ultimately, however, Umar was able to successfully provide and care for over 40,000 refugees. Now, with Syria firmly under their control... The Muslims look westward towards Egypt, which was completely isolated from the rest of the Roman Empire. Before we get into the Muslim conquest of Egypt, let's go back a little bit. Long before the Muslims ever thought about Egypt, there were certain events in Christian history that paved the way for them. In the year 451 of the common era, roughly 115 years before the birth of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, there was a meeting of several prominent Christians. These men represented various facets of Christian society, and they met in the city of Chalcedon, which is in modern-day Turkey. They were discussing a very important fact, though perhaps to outsiders it might seem like something trivial or insignificant. But to them, it was very important. They were discussing how they should define the true nature of Christ. They all believed that he was divine, yet according to their scripture, he lived and died like a man. These men met for three weeks in Chalcedon discussing various theoretical and theological positions of the Bible and Scripture to try to come up with this definitive idea of the exact nature of Christ. But finally, after many hours and several rounds of discussion and debate, they finally came up with a definition of the nature of Jesus Christ. They ultimately decided that he had two natures in one he was both God and man. With this ideology now firmly set, any Christians who deviated from this belief were declared heretics, meaning that they could be punished either through imprisonment, fines, excommunication, or ultimately even death. However, this declaration also caused a schism within the church because not all sects of Christianity, not all groups of Christians, accepted this concept of the true nature of Christ. While most Christians within the Roman Empire, whether they were Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, while most of them accepted the declaration at Chalcedon, known as the Chalcedon Decree, there were many other Christians who did not accept it. Those Christians who were part of the Armenian church, the Ethiopian church, and most relevant to our conversation, the Coptic church also did not accept this declaration. These groups, instead, they decided to stick with the idea that Jesus had only one true nature. He was both fully divine and fully human all at once. So, let's try to really understand this difference, this schism that was created by the Chalcedon decree. Those who attended Chalcedon, the meeting in Chalcedon, and those who followed the decree of Chalcedon, they believed that Jesus had two natures in one body. However, those that did not agree with the decree of Chalcedon, they said that Jesus had one nature that fully represented both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. So, the Chalcedon degree said that Jesus had two natures in one body, whereas the others including the coptic christians said that he had one nature which was at the same time both divine and human this seems like a very small detail something very tiny and trivial however 100 years later this small detail would lead to a whole lot of suffering within the christian world by the time that prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam died egypt was firmly under the control of the Eastern Roman Empire, which accepted and declared the Chalcedon decree as biblical truth. And the emperor at this time, Emperor Heraclius, he was determined to stamp out any opposing viewpoints. Among these opposing viewpoints were the heretical beliefs, at least from his perspective, the heretical beliefs of the Egyptian Copts. To help convince the Egyptian Coptic Christians of the validity of his argument, Heraclius sent his Archbishop Cyrus along with several thousand soldiers to help them understand what the true nature of Christ really was, to help them understand that their understanding of the true nature of Christ was incorrect and that the official stance during Roman Empire was the true understanding of Jesus Christ. Archbishop Cyrus spent the next 10 years doing everything he could to convince the Egyptian Coptic Christians of the error of their ways and to convince them to accept the decree of Chalcedon. Of course, he initially tried to convince them through argument and debate and discussion and lectures, but when that didn't work, he escalated his tactics to more intense measures, and this included things such as imprisonment, persecution, and even torture. This period of Archbishop Cyrus trying to convince the Coptic Christians of the Chalcedon Decree is known as the Great Persecution to the Coptic Christians. The Coptic bishops and clergy members who did not accept the Chalcedon Decree were removed from their position and were replaced by Roman bishops and clergy members who did accept the Chalcedon Decree. And then, of course, those same Coptic bishops and clergymen had to flee for their lives or risk being imprisoned, tortured, and ultimately even executed. The regular rank and file of the Coptic community, the regular members, they either had to accept the Roman decree of Chalcedon, or at the very least, they had to pretend that they did. Any Coptic Christian who publicly defied the Chalcedon decree were imprisoned and had their belongings confiscated. One author describes the persecution of one of the Coptic priests in the following manner, and we quote, Minas was tortured and drowned. First of all, lighted torches were held against him and he was burnt till the fat dropped from both sides of his body. Then, as he was still unshaken in his confession, his teeth were pulled out. Next, he was placed in a sack filled with sand and taken out to a distance of seven bow shots from the shore. Three times he was offered his life if he would acknowledge the counsel of Chalcedon. Three times he refused and then he was sunk in the sea. Yet it was not they who were victorious over Minas, that champion of the faith, but Minas, who by Christian patience overcame them, says the biographer of Benjamin. Unquote. Now, despite all of this persecution, Egypt was part of the Eastern Roman Empire. They were part of the Byzantine Empire. Even though the Egyptian Coptic Christians hated their Byzantine overlords, there wasn't much they could do about the persecution. However, this hatred, this discord between the ruled and the ruler created the perfect atmosphere for the Muslims who began to look west towards Egypt after the successes of Syria. And most people now Believe that it was Amr ibn al As who first brought the idea of invading Egypt to Omar ibn al Khattab in the year 639 of the Common Era. Amr was able to justify his idea to Omar with very convincing arguments. First, he argued that Egypt was cut off from Syria and most of the Roman Empire. Now that the Muslims controlled Syria, there was no direct connection, no land-bound connection between the bulk of the Roman Empire in Anatolia and Eastern Europe and Egypt. So now the only way the Romans could access Egypt was by sea. Another argument that Amr Ibn al-As put forward to Omar was that Egypt was defenseless because they were cut off from the rest of the empire. Their defenses were fairly weak. However, because it had the Nile River running through it and it had access to the Mediterranean Sea and so many bountiful ports and wonderful cities, it was still full of wealth. So from Amr Ibn al-As's perspective, Egypt was right for the picking. Another justification that Amr gave for invading Egypt was that many of the Roman nobles from Syria had escaped into Egypt when the Muslims came through Syria. These nobles and princes and generals from Syria who had fled to Egypt posed a threat to the Muslim control of Syria. Therefore, from Amr's perspective, it was prudence, simple, good governance to invade Egypt and make the land safe for Islam. Now, the thing you have to understand about Amr ibn al-As is that he was a diplomat. This man has some great diplomatic skills. And we're going to see more of his skills in later episodes, inshallah, especially in the conflict between Muawiyah and Ali. But if you just consider the background of Amr ibn al-Az, you will see that this man had all the makings of a modern-day politician, or what we might call in some circles, a connector. He was somebody who could always find a way to connect you with somebody else. He always either knew someone of importance or he knew someone who knew someone of importance. He was also very shrewd politically and strategically. And we will also see right now that he was also a fairly good general. But before we get into Amr's exploits in Egypt, let's look at some of his background and see what got him to this point. Well, first of all, Amr ibn al-As was born into a merchant clan of the Quraysh, and initially he was an enemy of Islam. As a matter of fact, once you hear some of his stories, you will see, oh, that Amr ibn al-As... Through his tribal connections and his business connections, he had created a pretty good and solid social network of his own. He had connections and ties with some of the most powerful people in the region at that time. Here's one example of the kind of person that Amr ibn As was. During the time of Prophet Muhammad wasallam before the Hijrah, When the Muslims were still being persecuted in Mecca, several of the Prophet's followers decided to migrate to Abyssinia, which is modern-day Ethiopia, to escape the persecution and the torture that they were receiving from their family members there in Mecca. The Quraysh, even though they didn't want the Muslims practicing Islam in Mecca, they didn't want them to leave either. So when they heard that this small group of Muslims had broken off and fled to Abyssinia, they made up their minds that they had to get them back. But Abyssinia was ruled by a powerful, although righteous, Christian king who held the title of An-Najashi. And so they had to send the right person to communicate with An-Najashi and convince him to send their people back to Mecca. Who else did they send to Abyssinia but Amr ibn al-As? He was actually a close friend of the king of Abyssinia. Think about that now. Amr ibn al-As, a pagan Arab merchant from pre-Islamic Arabia, was a close friend and on a first-name basis with the king of one of the most powerful countries in that area. That is an example of just what kind of person Ahmad ibn al-As was and this was not the only connection he had. In any case, Amr ibn al-As made the journey to Abyssinia and he talked with his friend and he presented a whole bunch of gifts to An-Najashi and tried to convince him to send the Muslim refugees back to Mecca. But An-Najashi, being the fair and righteous person he was, he insisted that he hear both sides of the story. And so he listened to what the Muslims had to say. And their main spokesperson was Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, who was the brother of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Ja'far explained the Muslims' cause and explained what Islam was and explained why they had to leave Mecca. And the king of Abyssinia, An Najashi, turned down Amr ibn As's request and sent him back to Mecca. Friendship or not, the man was still righteous. In the early years, Amr ibn al-As also participated in most of the battles against the Muslims. He participated on the side of the pagans against the Muslims at the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, and the Battle of the Trench, which is also known as the Battle of Khandaq. However, by the time the Muslims and the Quraysh signed the peace treaty of Hudaybiyyah, Amr ibn al-As was starting to have second thoughts about his allegiance to the Quraysh and his convictions in their pagan faith. And so ultimately, he came to Medina along with Khalid ibn Walid and accepted Islam at the same time as Khalid ibn Walid at the hand of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And Amr ibn al-As, being the politician and diplomat he was, worked his way to attain a very favorable position with Prophet Muhammad as well, and eventually was chosen by the Prophet to be the governor of Oman when that area accepted Islam. However, in reality, Amr ibn al-As earned that position because it was he who convinced the leaders of Oman to accept Islam in the first place. After the death of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, Amr ibn al aas continued to serve Islam and in fact he took part in the Battle of Yarmouk and the siege of Damascus under the leadership of Khalid ibn Walid. Now it wasn't necessarily easy for Amr to convince Omar ibn al-Khattab to invade Egypt. Omar was starting to Want to pull back on all of these constant invasions. He felt that all of this wealth and all of this land that was coming into the Muslim sphere of influence and coming under their control was making the Muslims soft and weak. He was concerned about their future. He was concerned about future generations inheriting all of this wealth and all of this land and not having any connection to the struggle that was part of the origins of Islam. So Omar was really reluctant to approve of Omar's invasion into Egypt. So Omar Ibn al-Az, he had to bring forth those arguments that we mentioned earlier consistently and keep going back and forth to try to get him to accept his proposal. Finally, reluctantly, Omar Ibn al-Khattab approved the invasion of Egypt. And so, with the caliph's reluctant approval, Amr ibn al-Az left for Egypt with 4,000 soldiers. Now, it is interesting that around this time, the Muslim armies were starting to become much more diverse. Initially, they were primarily Arabs, as we mentioned before. But now that the population of Muslims was beginning to grow, there were now large contingents of Roman and Persian soldiers within the Muslim ranks as well. And these were not necessarily mercenaries. These were Roman and Persian persians who actually converted to islam and joined the fighting armies of the muslims so Amr left from gaza and then entered into the area of egypt and the first egyptian village he came across was called Adish, but there weren't any romans there to fight and so they just passed on through from there, they went on to a city called Pelesium, which was considered at that point the primary entry for Egypt from Syria. Now, Pelesium was a very strategic city for the Romans as it was the crossroads between Asia and Africa. So, Ahmed ibn al-As laid siege to Pelesium in January of the year 640 and the city fell two months later. However, even though Amr ibn al-As was successful with the capture of Pelusium, he realized that his hopes of an easy victory of a walk through Egypt were incorrect. He would need many more reinforcements and many more soldiers than that small 4,000 contingent that Omar had initially approved. After Pelesium, he set his sights on the Egyptian city of Babylon and Alexandria. Now, just to be clear, this is not the city of Babylon that is in Persia. This city of Babylon no longer exists today. It is now part of the metropolis that we know of as Cairo. After the conquest of Pelusium, Amr ibn As continued to make his way through Egypt and then went on to the city of Bilbeis, which is southwest on the Nile Delta. He laid siege to Bilbeis for about one month. There was some severe fighting, but ultimately the city fell to the Muslims around March of the year 640. Now, the next city in line should have been the city of Heliopolis, which was just south of Belbase. But instead of going for that, Ahmed set his sights on Babylon, which is once again in modern day Cairo. But by this time, Cyrus, who remember was the torturous archbishop that Heraclius had sent down to Egypt. By now, Cyrus was starting to get his act together and had mustered up some soldiers to counter Ahmed ibn al-As's invasion. Cyrus got to Babylon before Amr did and he had a huge ditch dug around the city and in addition to that, the city was well guarded and had very strong fortifications. And so by the time Ahmed Ibn al-As and his forces arrived at Babylon, which is once again Cairo, just want to try to keep things straight here. By the time Ahmed arrived at Babylon, the city was nearly impenetrable. Cyrus had his ditch around the entrances to the city. The walls were very strong and solidly built. And finally, Cyrus had stocked it with some of his best soldiers. And so Amr, whose force was already small, only 4,000 men, not to mention the fact that he had already lost some men in the previous battles coming up to Babylon, he realized that he was not going to get through Babylon very easy. So all Amr ibn al Az could do was just lay siege to the city of Babylon and then send word back to Amr ibn al-Khattab in Medina that he needed more reinforcements. However, this situation favored Cyrus and the Romans inside the Egyptian city because all they had to do was hole up inside behind the walls and send arrows and spears and flaming catapults down on the Muslims. And every now and then they could send an array to attack the Muslims and whittle off their forces little by little. These tactics were very successful for Cyrus because he could inflict heavy damage against Ahmad ibn al-Az while suffering very little of his own. Even if Cyrus and Ahmad lost the same number of men in any particular battle, the damage for Ahmad would be much more costly than the damage for Cyrus. Ahmad continued to wait for reinforcements to come to Medina, but Finally, it was just taking too long and he decided he had to take another route. He had to do something different. Since Cyrus was so focused on protecting Babylon, he had ignored the defenses of some of the wealthy cities around Babylon. So Amr decided since Cyrus wasn't paying these cities any attention, he could go ahead and attack these cities, take their wealth, and use that as a staging ground to attack Babylon. And one of the wealthiest cities in the area was a city called Fayyum on the other side of the Nile River. So Amr, he sent a detachment to gather some boats and once they had them, they made their way across the river to Fayyum. All right, Alhamdulillah. I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope inshallah that you found it very beneficial. So today I would like to talk about in this outro portion of the show, I'd like to talk a little bit about myself and the show. There are lots of new listeners as the show has kind of shifted audiences and attracted new people and has moved up in the ranks in popularity. Alhamdulillah and thank you to all of you who have liked and subscribed to the show. But we have many new listeners and there is in Those of you who are new, you haven't been here since the beginning, and so you may not know much about my background. So my hope, inshallah, is that by discussing a few things about myself, you will become more familiar with me and why I do the show. Though we have discussed that last week, which brings me to my next point, is that this is a bit of a process that I started last week in the last episode when I tried to explain the reasons behind me doing the show. Well, this episode... Episode. I'm going to give you just a very short Cliff Notes bio of myself. First and foremost, as you perhaps already know by now, my name is Mutaki Ismail. and in case you were wondering yes i was born muslim it's not something that's very crucial to know but for some reason people often think that i converted and i don't know why anyway however though i did not convert both of my parents did convert to islam from christianity many years ago way back in the old and golden days of the early 70s most of my childhood i was spent in brooklyn new york so i pretty much tell people i am from brooklyn because that is where i was raised however at the age of 15 my mother who once again was muslim by now decided to send me to senegal in west africa in order to study islam senegal has a very large muslim population somewhere around 80 to 90 percent something like that and my mother wanted me to learn islam and she also wanted me to get to the motherland for a while so i spent three years in senegal studying islam islam memorizing quran learning arabic hadith uh, so forth and so on the basis of islamic studies after senegal i then went to study in trinidad if you are not aware trinidad happens to have a fairly large muslim population and so I studied at a very rigid and strict Darul Olum in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean for about two years. So altogether with three years in Senegal, then the next two years in Trinidad, I wound up spending roughly five years overseas studying islam between the ages of 15 and 20 eventually i did come back home to america back to brooklyn and pretty much immediately went on to college got married and started a family and that's how things pretty much have been for the past i don't know 20 years or so anyway here we are now my current focus of islamic studies i still do study islam i have to kind of fit it in between work and this podcast and other things but my current focus of islamic study is really trying to improve my arabic and understand the quran more and so i'm constantly reinforcing myself but what i really would like to be able to do and i am getting there alhamdulillah I would really like to just be able to read the Quran and understand it very, very well. And Alhamdulillah, things are going very great in that area. Now, as far as my interest in history, that probably comes from my mother who taught high school history way back in the day and she always had a bunch of history textbooks and history books all over her house and and uh, i i would spend a lot of time reading them believe it or not yes i actually spent much of my youth reading history textbooks that's how much i liked history of course i did other things beyond that but I actually enjoyed reading about history and, you know, I just happened to enjoy it quite a bit. And though I was raised in Brooklyn and I was Islamically educated in Africa and the Caribbean, and secularly educated in florida i currently live in the atlanta area really just a few miles outside of atlanta with my wife and five children so that's pretty much me in a nutshell hope that you have a better understanding of you know who this person is that you're listening to every week and inshallah i hope that you if you have questions about me or if you want to know something else or if you if you have some islamic questions i can try to answer them i don't really like doing fiqh and sharia questions they can be kind of uh, daunting at times because i have to take responsibility for my answers but you know we do we do what we can i would prefer to stick with the history for the time being anyway so inshallah i want to remind you that If you are not a member of the ELM Club, the Islamic Learning Materials Club, I encourage you to join. Uh, Just recently, I thought I had uploaded it before, but I just figured out I didn't upload it. I have recently uploaded The Slander of Imam Bukhari, which dovetails with today's episode, in which you heard about the persecution of the Coptic Christians by the Romans, based upon this fairly seemingly trivial interpretation of the nature of Jesus. And this is, of course, from a Christian perspective, not the Muslim perspective. Interestingly, we had our own little persecution stint as Muslims, that is. And this revolved around the question about whether the Quran was created or not. And this led to the slander of imam bukhari but also the persecution and torture of imam ahmed ibn hamba and all of that information is discussed in my own unique style in the episode called the slander of imam bukhari in which if you are a member of the islamic learning materials club you can go there and listen to that now along with many other things If you are interested in joining the Islamic Learning Materials Club, then it is very affordable. Only $1 for the first month and $7.99 every month after that. Now, yes, you could be a jerk and sign up for the first month for one buck and download everything and then cancel your membership the next month. But I'm going to hope that I don't have a bunch of jerks listening to this podcast, inshallah. If you don't want to join the Islamic Learning Materials Club right now, then you can still download the episode called The Slander of Imam Bukhari by simply going to the show notes for this page, which is IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash egypt and you can download the episode there for a small price i think it's about a dollar 99 something like that but once again you get much more than that if you go ahead and actually join the club and finally one last thing well maybe a couple of last things i used to give a lot of khutbahs around the atlanta area and in other parts of the country i don't do so as much right now the work schedule just really doesn't allow it but if you are interested in hearing how i deliver a khutbah i'm not saying i'm an imam suraj or anything like that but you know i'm not too bad the videos are available for members of the islamic Learning Materials Club. And speaking of Imam Siraj, I would like for you to know that this podcast rests on a website called Islamic Learning Materials.com, and there are several articles on there written by Imam Siraj Wahaj's daughter whose name is Subhana Wahaj, and even some from his other daughter named Hujra Wahaj. But Subhana Wahaj has some very interesting articles, very recent ones, actually. One called, We're So Busy Praying, and another one that I thought was very inspirational My decision to be who I was created to be. Now when I ask you to join the Islamic Learning Materials Club and when I ask you to download these podcasts, this money goes to do things to keep the podcast running and to keep the website going. Now... For Sister Subhana Wahaj, Imam Siraj Wahaj's daughter, I pay her for these articles that she writes. I don't just ask her to do them voluntarily, I pay her. So I pay her from the proceeds that come from you joining this membership club. So I just want you to know that when you download something, when you like the podcast when you subscribe when you become a member or anything like that those things you do have much further reaching impact than what you may realize by you helping with keeping this podcast running inshallah you're also helping a a good muslim sister and her family get by and have extra money to take care of the things they need so once again i also want to encourage you to continue to support the show in any way that you find easy for you and in the final thing before we wrap up i would like to remind you to if you haven't done so already, to go into iTunes and like and subscribe to the Islamic History Podcast. Alhamdulillah, we are doing very well as far as the rankings are concerned. But the more you subscribe and the more you like, but especially the more you subscribe, if you are not already subscribed, the more people who subscribe, the higher in the rankings this show will go, and the more visible it will become to other people. The more Muslims and non-Muslims who get to see this podcast, inshallah, the more people will be convinced that Islam has won a very great and diverse and amazing history and that much of the stereotypes that we hear about are simply not true. Once again, links to everything will be available in the show notes at IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Egypt. So we're going to bounce on out of here with the song Build the World Together by Abdul Malik from Native Dean. Until next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
1: and Patan shoots us and the kids in the neighborhood threw eggs at our home I was bleeding with the black eye once they pelt me with stones, it was cause we were different, we were Muslim and black fast forward several decades and now where are we at? We got Ferguson Charleston, Chapel Hill, Houston not easy being Afro-American or a Muslim, hands up don't shoot black men, don't group us, all in your mind what these few us do and when a Muslim is violent, then they label him a terrorist but anyone else, oh he just needed a therapist. Stuff on the news is far from the views of billions of Muslims, so don't be confused. Cause that only brings hate and the scariest fight. We need this area wiped of these stereotypes. What? Right? robberies and car chases. Muslims are just violent. They kill people and bomb places. Dude, check your history when Europe had its dark ages. Africans and Muslims were scientists and stargazers. Read about the African scholars of Timbuktu. There was knowledge and prosperity where Africans ruled. Algebra and algorithms that we still use were of the many things discovered by Muslims to name a few. In Africa, Christians and Muslims were happy neighbors with the Muslims. In Spain is when the Jewish golden age was. Read about Najashi, the African Can niggas, cause enlighten with the African and Muslim nations. More we learn about each other, more we use respect. And won't be swayed by the biases the news projects. Cause Islam and Christianity and Jews connect. And every race and all humanity, let's move ahead. Come on. Love is stronger than pain, let's push on with the chain. Let's push on with the chain. Don't be part of the game. Don't be part of the game. Of dishonor and shame. Of am dishonor and shame. There's nothing stronger than pain. Let's love is stronger than pain. Let's push on with the chain. Let's push on with the chain.